This is Diary of a Nation. I'm your host, Christina Zlotnick. My podcast explores the human experience. Ed Clifford began mushing before he was even born. He's a retired second-generation sled dog racer who made the transition to ultra-running at the age of 50. He and his partner Don are building a log cabin in the woods of Raymond, New Hampshire. I recorded this interview on the porch outside their cabin. Ed, what was your childhood like? Fairly simple. Uh, My parents uh, lived in the center of town up until I was born, uh, but they were determined to get me out of the center of town, and they wanted to move a little further away, something quieter. Um, The land that we're on now is actually family land. My mother grew up a half a mile up the street, and uh, I've got a lot of relatives in the area that have some of this land here. Anyway, my dad sort of fell in love with the Siberian Husky breed. So he got a Siberian Husky before I was born. He began to get a little carried away with it, maybe. (laughs) Uh, Got a few more and then had himself a team. And we started traveling to races as a family and, and that kind of thing. Your parents were both mushers before you were even born. Yeah, pretty much. My, um, I joke with my mother, and of course, she's from a different time, so it didn't seem proper, but I was mushing in the womb. She was pregnant with me and did her last racing. As soon as I was born, she retired, um, basically took care of me and let dad and myself and uh, a couple of my older cousins would travel with us and race. Do you have brothers and sisters, and were they involved? Yes, I have a sister, Jean. She's five years younger than me. Um, I guess I was a handful. It took them a while to get up the nerve to have another one, but uh, they're glad they did because she was a lot easier keeper than I was. She didn't take to the sport as much as I did. She ran what we call the one-dog class, which is about a quarter of a mile, just a quick, easy loop. But when it came to step up to the three-dog class, she just really wasn't interested in the risk and the work and the, the, uh, a lot of things are out of your control. You know, you try to manage the dogs and and the trail and what the deer or the dogs that might come out and distract them. And it's a lot of stress for some people. And she really was okay with staying home with mom at that point. Tell me more about your parents, though, and their love of mushing. And their accomplishments, especially your father, since he continued on with the sport. Um, Dad grew up in Waltham, uh, right in the heart of the city. He helped his dad at a uh, at a local bar that they owned, and then he went into the Air Force. Um, came out, uh, went right into teaching. Worked hard his whole life, usually two or three jobs, uh, but his passion really became the sled dogs. Um, so I think as a kid growing up in the city and suddenly being in the country, he was able to do things that kids only dream of um, all of a sudden. And, and it didn't actually stop with dogs. We had uh, dozens of dogs. Uh, his brother's kids were older than me, and they were helping him with the dogs before I was really ready to do it myself. Um, but he also ended up with horses, cows, pigs, <laughs> goats. Um, we had quite the menagerie going on here, a lot of, a lot of animals, um, which was fine with my mom because she grew up a country girl just up the street in a family of 11. She was the youngest of 11. And uh, I, I can remember going to my grandmother's house, and she still had an outhouse when I was a kid. So it was very primitive. What are some of your father's accomplishments as a musher? Having a really good time. And that's kind of what I've tried to get back to rather than being competitive, because my parents weren't really sure where I came from. Neither of them were competitive at all in sports. And when it came to mushing, my dad was there for the camaraderie, for the friendship. Um, they'd have little side bets between each other. You know, if I, if I beat your time today, you owe me a fifth of apricot brandy or something like that. You know, lots of fun stuff. Back then, there were hundreds of people that showed up at sled dog races. There were 40 kids my age that raced. It was huge back in the 70s. Um, so he did it for very different reasons than I started to do it when I got older. Um, somehow I just got into the competitive side of it and always wanted to be near the sharp end of the results. And he recognized that and I appreciate that he 
sort of went from the registered Siberian show breed to a more crossbred dog for racing called an Alaskan Husky with some hound in it. What is an Alaskan Husky? It's a dog bred just for racing. And if you look back in pedigrees of the great sled dogs, you'll see Irish Setter, Saluki, all kinds of little things that have been bred into them for different qualities of speed, leg length, coat size, quality. Um, for long distance racing, you're looking for something with a low metabolism. For sprint racing, say a six mile race, you want a big dog that runs really fast for a short distance. Would famous mushers have known your father or was he more under the radar? Oh, he was under the radar for sure. Yeah, he was not competitive at all. He just loved showing up on the weekends, meeting all the people that he, you know, loved to, to see. It, Where would it, he have raced? Anywhere in New England. But um, confined to New England? Yeah, pretty much. I think we went uh, yeah, maybe to Canada once with a friend of his who spoke uh, French. And we went up to one race. But uh, no, he, he really didn't stretch himself out that way looking for competition. He, he just loved the community of sled dog racing and mushing. When and why did he retire? Um, I think he got to the point where it's very consuming. Um, once he gave up on horses, um, we'd have a couple of pigs or cows that were easy keepers that were, you know, something that we would take to the slaughterhouse in the fall and, you know, we'd raise them for, for a purpose. Uh, but the dogs, it takes away from your opportunity to do other things. Most mushers are, have to be so fiercely dedicated to their dogs that you don't take vacations you don't have time for a lot of other hobbies or activities. Like being a farmer. Yeah, it is absolutely like being a farmer. That's the best analogy. What's the life of a musher like? It sounds all-consuming if you're doing it right. Yes. It's not too bad in the summer. Basically, the dogs are relaxing. We, we got a lot of shade here, as you can see, and make sure that they're comfortable. They've got water. Um, they get a little less active, more lethargic when it gets warm. So uh, June, July, and August are pretty mellow months. But by the end of August, it would start to cool down. That's when we begin short conditioning runs and start to bring them up to a level where they'd be ready to race in the winter. So what does that look like Well, on a um, weekly basis? On a weekly basis, I try to get uh, each dog out at least every other day because they don't really have an easy button. So it's not like a runner. Okay, I'll run hard today. I'll run easy tomorrow. They run hard all the time. It's what they love to do. So we build in that rest by leaving them home. They How many miles a week? Uh, at first, we're going to start out at two miles. Um, and then we're going to work up after a week or two to four, and then six, then eight. Try to give them manageable distances to get conditioned to as we move them up. And it's, you really have to stay on top of it because the season is so short, our cool weather here to train. And then our winter season as well is getting shorter and shorter. So, uh, you know, we have very little time and it's six months of really intense focus on the dogs. What does a dog eat? <laughs> um, every musher has a different diet. Um, some will feed a high-end commercial food with, with a lot of protein and, and fat, um, good digestible protein and fat. Most of the mushers running longer distances like we did or looking for that little extra edge will feed a meat source, either beef or chicken. Um, we focused on chicken and had a meat grinding business. So once a week, we grind a 1,000 to 2,000 pounds of chicken, and some of it we would sell and some would be fed to our dogs. Um, that itself is very labor intensive, and I did that for 35 years almost, like right out of college. And this is the first season that I have not been grinding chicken. <laughs> and my back is very thankful. <laughs> but in lieu of grinding chicken, you're now building a log cabin. Yes. yes. <laughs> Different <laughs> muscle sets. Yes. <laughs> how do you select which dogs will do what? Like, how do you find the leader? How do you know which ones really can make the team? Yeah. So when I was a kid, 
my dad was raising show quality Siberians. And one, he'd breed one female in the spring, we'd have one litter in the summer, and I would be in charge of raising the puppies. So I would take them out into the fields that we had nearby and run them through the fields, um, at least until they were too fast for me to stay ahead of. But they would just chase and follow. So I would observe them from the time I was seven or eight years old doing this. I was observing them and then watching them develop into adults. So I think I just got an eye or an instinct for who was going to develop at an early age. Um, the look in their eye, the way they hold their ears or their tail, their intensity, their enthusiasm. It's not always the fastest one that turns out to be your leader. Sometimes it's a slower one, but um, you sort of pick that out too because they're more independent and investigative, curious. It sounds like you know a lot about the psychology of dogs. You have to really get inside their heads to do well in the sport. The best mushers have a lot of empathy. Um, when I train them, I kind of feel what they must feel as a energy? runner. Energy? Yeah, their energy levels, because um, I can relate to it too as a runner. Because um, once I get into junior high and high school, I begin running. And so a lot of the lessons that I learned from them apply to me in running and vice versa. What do you know about dogs that me as a lifelong dog lover might not know? They, they love physical activity the most. Um, and I think a lot of people pamper their dogs too much rather than taking them out and exercising them or teaching them something, giving them a job or a purpose. Because dogs love to please. And if they know what you want and it makes you happy, they love to do that. And so, you know, we meet resistance now and then from the animal rights folks or think we're cruel for making our dogs do this. But you can't push a rope. And they're out in front, and if they don't want to run, they're not going to run. Even though they have this innate need to please? Yep. If they know what you want, they'll do it. But the easiest thing in the world to do is to take a puppy and encourage it to run. Everybody spends a lot of time and money teaching them to heal, to obey, to sit on the couch, to get heavy. Guilty. Uh, <laughs> yes, and I, I, and I don't judge that. That's, that's how people want to live. Well, and that's, that's good for their brain it's, and sure. for the connection between human and dog. Absolutely. What we do is let them do what they want to do naturally, which is run in a pack. But we do it in a guided situation where they're not chasing down deer or doing anything destructive. They're just doing what they naturally You channel them. Yeah. So what have you learned from them that has helped you as a runner? A lot about diet. Uh, diet, recovery. Um, after my second 100 miler, I decided to go keto, which is basically how we feed the dogs. They get very little carbs. Um, there's little carb and fiber in their uh, basic grain that they get fed. But mostly they're getting uh, high protein high fat, very high fat diet. And in studies done with um, beagles at Cornell, they found that um, these specially bred beagles, they're all very uniform and they're very athletic. But when they were fed a high fat diet, they performed much better than the beagles fed a high carb diet. So your whole marathon idea of high carb, carb loading, that actually works against the sled dog. How so? And how does it work against a person, too? Because that's always what I've done before and during big bicycling events, running events. Mm -hmm. um, so I put keto to the test in a few ways. And for our dogs that are going to run for an hour or two, um, we're not doing the really long distances. Most of our races are 30 miles or less. But the dogs don't stop and drink carb drinks or anything like that. Gatorade. Yeah. No, they're not interested in that. Give them something that tastes like chicken or, you know, something dead on the ground. They might eat that. What I found in my own experiences with keto, and of course I'm a human, not a dog. Dogs are incredibly efficient animals. Um, we're not quite as efficient, but the limitation on keto is that if my heart rate is going to run at 150 to 160 beats, which is, say, Boston Marathon qualifying time for me, I am not going to get my energy from fat fast enough. It's a slow burn. Okay. But for ultras, if my heart rate is around 120 or 130, 
then I can get all the energy I need from fat, and I don't even need to take in carbs. So it makes even more sense to do that for distance, for endurance. Yes. I mean, obviously, a marathon is endurance as well, but it's a shorter span of time compared to an ultra that lasts a day or more. Yes. Okay, so that's the difference. Yeah, yeah. And um, I did bicycle race for a few years, and what I found while I was on the keto diet and is that I didn't have the ability to get my heart rate up to 170, 180 to go up climbs or to stay in a pack that was attacking or something like that. Um, that was a deficiency in keto. And for that kind of racing, I would definitely need to carb load or take in carbs during the event. So we'll talk about cycling in a little bit, but let's get back to mushing. When you're going to the race, what's going on? So you get there, you've got what, an eight dog team? Uh, it depends. They have a four, uh, they have ski joring, one or two dog, uh, four dog class, six dog class, an eight dog class. Those usually, uh, measure in miles about the number of dogs that you're running. And then they have the unlimited class, which is what I focused on, which is you can run any number of dogs and it's a distance from 10 to 30 miles. Um, so uh, that's a little more challenging to prepare for because I've run anywhere from uh, 9 to 20 dogs at once and been fairly competitive against people running bigger teams. That shows a lot of flexibility in your ability, I think, to train animals and to have yourself in top shape. Because yeah. there's so many different factors at play when you're running different numbers of dogs and different distances. It takes different skill sets. Yeah. 20 years ago, um, I had a, a kennel of dogs that were very versatile. And um, they started having these fall races with wheels, bike during cane across, which is hooking to a, a dog to a belt on your waist and running cross country style. Um, and then the wheeled cart races of four, six, or eight. Uh, beyond that, it's kind of uh, unsafe to run more, more than six or eight dogs on a wheeled cart in the dirt. I was so competitive that I would train those dogs, and I had a, they wouldn't run more than one event. They would specialize each one, four, six, eight. Um, and it, my goal was to try and win every class. And in a few times I did. Um, that was as good as it got for me. Then we would transition into the winter uh, racing scene where the races were longer and I would stop training for the short races of dry land we call it and I would uh, spend about a month just gradually building the conditioning up for the longer races and trying to pace them down a little bit so that they could go from all out 20 miles an hour to a steadier 17 or 18 miles an hour. So take me through the race itself what are those tactics during the race what are you trying to achieve and what's going on? Um, I tried to be competitive, um, but mostly everything you do for the race is done in training. You just hook them up at the race and manage them. Make sure that they stay on the trail. If you overtake a slower team, that they have a nice clean pass going by. Um, road crossings, you want them to be able to cross a road and not be freaked out by the people that are standing there to keep you from going down the road. Um, there's all sorts of little uh, obstacles and variables out there. And basically, you're just on the sled as a manager. Um, if it's a steep hill or they're slowing down towards the end, I can run or pedal. But generally, they're going too fast for me to really help them. You've told me that the dogs don't care if the sled is upended. They just want to run. Oh, yeah. That sounds highly risky. And that's one of the things, one of the reasons why my sister, who's probably smarter than me, uh, <laughs> decided that this wasn't for her. Because once you lose the team once, you realize that uh, anything can happen. It's some things are out of your control, and what is in your control is tenuous at times. So, would the dogs run off together without you? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, they they're they're pretty excited because all of a sudden the load got lighter and they're going faster. <laughs> How do you get them? Obviously, you're a runner. Yeah, but that doesn't save you completely. They're faster than you. Yeah, For the first time I lost a team was probably uh, ten years old, and. Yeah, I couldn't run fast enough to catch them. Nope. I had a four or five mile run back to the truck, and there they were waiting for so me. So you're done? Yeah. Like you're what, disqualified? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
it happened once in a race when I was a kid, and then it happened once in training. And I'm out in uh, Bear Brook State Park, and my dad was great. At 10, 11, 12 years old, he turns me loose with three dogs. He says, you know, see you when you get back. And then he hooks up his team, and he goes. And, you know, just in case I do lose the team, he'll come up behind me, throw me in his sled, and we'll eventually see them back at the truck. But they're great. If they know the trail, they're going to go back to their truck. Oh, they won't get lost, but yeah, you just won't. need to find your way back. Yeah. Have you had any interest in doing races longer than the 30 miles? I mean, what is the Iditarod? A thousand? Yeah. That's yeah, that's a thousand. And such you, a big gap there. You have to qualify for that. You've got to do a certain number of races over 100, 200, 300 miles, and then you can submit your entry to qualify for the Iditarod. I did a race called the Stage Stop in Wyoming 20-odd years ago. And it was 30 to 70 miles a day for 10 days. And that was a qualifier. And so in the back of my mind, I thought, okay, the, this wasn't so bad. It's kind of fun. Um, slower pace, less stressful, um, more time with your dogs. Um, we camped out three nights between stages. So I got a chance to experience camping out with dogs, um, which I had never done. So I always thought, when, before I retire, I'm just going to go get my qualifiers and do the Iditarod. Um, but my dogs became so specialized for the short, fast races that they really were not equipped for that kind of racing. It'd be like taking Usain Bolt and saying, hey, go run me a marathon. You know, yeah, it's not the same skill not set. not wheelhouse. So I would have needed to probably raise a new generation of dogs crossbred to Iditarod lines with thicker coats and better feet and uh, different temperament for running, more patience. What is that ideal dog physically? It depends on the class. For you, for what's me, that ideal dog? I like a dog with really good feet. And what that means is um, they're, they're fairly tight. The snow doesn't work up into the webbing between the pads. That ends up like sandpaper, and they can get blistered and raw, and the skin can even open up. Hence the booties that you see in the Iditarod. In sprint racing, the dogs are running 20, sometimes close to 25 miles an hour at the beginning, and they need that traction, so we don't run boots, which means we have to be even more careful in training to make sure that their feet stay really good because if they go in with sore feet they're not going to want to run what do the expenses look like oh god I, I people ask me and i say no i i don't keep track it's discouraging anyone who's ever kept track for a whole year of their expenses is so discouraged that they don't even want to think about it anymore so i stopped thinking about it because this is what i wanted to do and it didn't matter what it cost i would just do it how did you find the money though I worked part-time at UPS. I was grinding up to 2,000 pounds of chicken a week, and I was selling dog food that I would bring in by the tractor-trailer load. So I was hustling, trying to make money. And honestly, back 20 to 30 years ago, there was more prize money than there is now in sled dog racing. So I could actually make my expenses um, every weekend. Um, and even in surplus enough to pay for the dog's food during the summer. What were the winning purses? Um, well, two or three grand would go pretty far back then. Um, I, I can't remember what a pallet of dog food is, but we pay $50 for a good quality bag of dog food now. And back then, I could pay, buy a bag for 10 bucks. Um, one of the companies that we worked with, Casco, even matched prize money that you won if you were a sponsored um, athlete using that that brand. So that I mean, it didn't get better than that. I mean, that was just awesome back then. But all good things go away. <laughs> Tell me about some of your best memories during races. I was in Alaska about ten years ago, and I was on my way there, and a friend who lived in New England, uh, actually a veterinarian went to Cornell. She moved to Alaska. Um, she sends me a message on Wednesday night. Um, Ed, the draw is on Thursday. Do you want me to put your name in? But that was the draw for the limited North American championship where they run ski jour, four dog, six dog, eight dog. And I said, no, Don, I'm coming for the open, which is the following week. 
that's where you run 20, 20, and 30 on the third day. And she was uh, kind of shocked. I only had nine dogs, and I showed up at one of the biggest races in the world with nine dogs. And on the first day, I actually passed a team of 20, and we were right in the middle of the pack, which I thought was great. Coming from New England, where we have a challenging winter, we didn't have good snow, it's warmer than Alaska. Um, to be a little kennel, to go to Alaska and race against these bigger teams. And the second day, the second day 20, I was down to eight. And on the third day, I only went out with six dogs against teams that still had 12, 15, 16, 18 dogs. And we finished 12th out of 25 starters. And for me, that was, that was really big. Um, just to know that my, my little team was that well-conditioned that they could hang in there with all the big teams in Alaska. Um, we didn't embarrass ourselves. We had a great time. Um, I was so proud of the dogs. It got me thinking that I wanted to do this when I retire. But what, what would happen if I retire from UPS, these eight and 10 hour days, I could just train dogs. So for a few years, I really leaned into that. But as ultra running became more and more part of my life, I realized, and we have less and less snow, global warming, whether you believe it or not, something is having an effect on our winters. And there just isn't enough snow to do what I want to do here anymore. Has that forced retirement for a number of people? Oh, yeah. That and the economy. Um, the energy crisis in the 70s, that took a lot of families out of the sport. That was when we saw our big decline in mushrooms, uh, mushing families and, and attendance probably took out half the sport right there. And since then, it's been sort of trickling away. You know, it's expensive. It's fringe. Um, yeah, there's just not that many people left in the area doing it. What challenges have you had on the trail? Oh, I've, I've been out in weather where it went from snow to rain to freezing rain. I can remember once coming in, my hands were completely frozen. I, I couldn't get the zipper off my jacket. It had frozen solid um, from the rain and then the refreeze. And I still had to take care of the dogs. I, they came in. They're happy. They're, they're not worried about the weather. They had fun. But I still got to... And it's dark. It's, it was midnight. It was a night run. And uh, I just had to find a way to take care of them. Uh, it didn't matter how uncomfortable I was. You know, they don't take care of themselves. Yeah, there's a lot of times where I was up at four in the morning to head out to some place remote up north and try to beat the snowmobile traffic. Um, there's plenty of times that I was going out after work late at night, and you're exhausted. Uh, and it, it, Back then, I was so passionate. My motivation was stronger than the adversity that I was facing. So it, it never occurred to me that it was hard. Yeah, it's hard, but it, it was different because I was motivated to do it, um, to get them in shape and, you know, to do what I love to do. But yeah, sometimes it just, I look back and there were times that were really, really hard. And uh, yeah. I think mushers, as, if you're a successful musher, if you have a big kennel and you've traveled around with the dogs, you're a tough, tough person. It builds toughness just like farming. You know, it doesn't matter if you broke your arm or you're sick with the flu. You still got to go out there every day and do it. Who were some of your favorite dogs over the years and why? Well, when I got out of college, um, I got a job part-time as an animal control officer in town. And I was offered a puppy from a friend in Kingston, New Hampshire, the Heckmans. And it was from an, a really good breeding um, an Alaskan Husky. Uh, I went to see the dog, and he was free. They said, you know, if you want him, you can have him. Um, but he would cower in the corner. He had an umbilical hernia, and he sure didn't look like much. But I s took him with gratitude. He was a freebie, and I had no money, uh, but I wanted more dogs. So being a very young dog, he was three or four months, I think, um, I just made him a house pet. And we worked with him constantly. I was, he was with me in the truck as an animal control officer. So he kind of grew up side by side with me. We'd patrol the town. If there was a loose dog, if the dog wasn't shy um, or dog was shy, I could send Ben out 
and Ben would make friends with the dog, and pretty soon I was able to get the dog. Well, the dog was an like, animal yes. control so, officer, too. So he too. became my deputy dog. Um, <laughs> Literally. Well, and your daughter is still a musher? Oh, yes. Yes, she's taken over. She's a champion now in her own right. She won the Laconia World Championship Six Dog last year. And she was just doing dryland racing up in Bristol, Quebec last week. She finished second and third in these uh, six and four dot classes. So she's she's got the fever. She is passionate. And uh, she's doing everything I did back in the day with single-minded focus. Isn't that exciting to see yes. a third generation? Yeah. Yeah, it really is some kind of an addiction, I guess. <laughs> so you retired. When did you retire and... We had a young woman up in Bow, New Hampshire, who was interested in uh, getting some faster dogs and being more competitive. And she's a good kid. And her mother, she's a second generation. I've known her mom and, and uh, family for quite a while. So I knew they were going to have a great home. Um, she, one of her training partners is a veterinarian. And um, so I just, I, I felt really comfortable that somebody who was going to use them uh, for what they love to do and would take really good care of them. And we've been up to visit them and they're doing great. So we're comfortable with that decision. Let's transition to cycling. Back in the late 80s, when you were an undergrad at the University of New Hampshire, you were on the cycling team. Yeah. How'd you get started in that? My friend up the street was passionate about two things, bicycle racing and wrestling. So I would go to his house, and in his room, he had all these pictures of bike racers and stuff. And I'm, I'm about 10 years old, 10 or 11. Uh, so it was intriguing. The other thing that got me interested in cycling is that my dad was a full-time teacher at Exeter High School, where he taught business and typing and accounting and that kind of thing. In the summer, he taught typing at Phillips Exeter Academy. There's a big bike race in Exeter called the Exeter Criterium. And on those Wednesday nights, my dad would take me out and we would watch them race around this three-quarter of a mile block course. And the rush of those guys going by me at 25, 30 miles an hour and seeing them sprint for the finish and, and the crashing and the blood and, and everything that just goes with it, the screaming and the, the cowbells. And I, I was so captivated by it. As a, you know, now I'm 11 or 12. How do you get into that unless you know somebody at that age? My parents didn't know anything about it, and I wasn't. I was more into running. So those seeds were planted at a young age. A friend from Mushing, who actually had a logging company and needed help in the summer, said, "Hey, I bike race. I'll give you a bike. Let's make this happen. You can work for me in the summer. We'll train at night when we get done." And so that's what happened after my sophomore year, somewhere before my junior year, I started racing with somebody who knew what they were doing, took me under their wing, and I'll be forever thankful for John uh, Harlemert for doing that for me. He gave me a job, and he gave me a passion for cycling. Fast forward to junior year, and I step onto the team, and uh, right away I, I had some success as a B rider. They had AB and, and women's. And so uh, they started me in the Bs. I did pretty well. I was able to score some points for them in the big races and, and move up to the A class and as a senior. How did you come to compete against Lance Armstrong? I would say as my cycling was winding down, uh, about 10 years into it, I did a little criterium up in Maine. I think it was called the Bitterford Sacco Criterium. And it had a big hill in it, about a mile long. And so... This uh, pro team, Subaru Montgomery, shows up, and everybody's talking about this kid, Lance. Comes out of triathlon, shows up at bike races. How old was he then, roughly? Oh, he's probably 19, 19 or 20. And you were? Oh, had to be in my 30s, 30-ish, yeah, towards the end of my semi-serious cycling. Um, so I'm in the race, and Lance Armstrong, within a few laps takes off alone up this climb and proceeds to lap the whole field. Wow. Yeah, he was just nuts. Uh, you could tell the difference between a great cyclist and an average good cyclist. Because we're all good. We were all top amateurs or pros. You had to be to be in that 
race. Um, but to see the difference, that, that really smacked home like, okay, that guy is special. And, and whatever his history is with the other stuff, um, at that age, just to be that strong, that's what it takes to be a professional bike rider. So any of us who are uh, harboring dreams of being a professional bike rider, we could see that there's a big difference <laughs> between us and that. Because the next year, he was in Europe with the postal team, and he won the world championships. He didn't do the Tour de France until after cancer. Several years later, when he got the testicular cancer and battled through that, he lost a lot of his Ironman, you know, uh, swim weight, the kind of weight that you put on for, for strength and stamina and stuff. For the, yeah, which you for the, don't want as a cyclist, exactly. a pure cyclist. So he lost so much weight. And when, when he rebuilt his body, he only rebuilt his legs. He could not climb with the best climbers in the world before that. But after he lost that extra 10 or 15 pounds of upper body weight that doesn't help you cycling, that transformed him into the cyclist that we all know. Let's shift to running. Okay. You started as a 10-year-old? Yeah, I mean, I guess the puppies, I started with the puppies much earlier than that, just running, running, running. And my mother said that I came out of the womb running, that I was hard to stop. And I would run into things and run around pools. And uh, I smashed my head into the bed one morning, running into their bedroom. I sliced my nose open down to the bone and was bleeding forever. And my mother was freaking out. So, yeah, I also ran into a tree uh, during recess uh, in elementary school and almost ripped my ear completely off. Wow. Um, yep. I, I've done some crazy stuff involved with running. <laughs> you knew you had it in you even then. Yeah. So uh, I'm 10 years old and there's this five-mile road race that's being run in town for the very first time. And it comes up almost near our house. And I knew the loop. And I asked my parents to sign me up. And they're like, oh, okay. Well, he runs all the time. Why not? So I went out and ran it. And I think I averaged eight or nine minute miles for, for no real particular training. The uh, local track coach uh, came up to my parents and said, um, I've got my eye on this kid. And I really want to make sure that when he gets into junior high, that he looks me up or you do or somebody because I want, I want him to run for me. So uh, I get into junior high, seventh grade, and he allows me to run with the high school team. So I get to run uh, some JV races in seventh and eighth grade, JV high school, cross country, and get exposed to that whole environment, the team atmosphere. And um, uh, we had a great team back then. Raymond High School had one of the best running programs in the state. And uh, Larry Martin was the coach. Uh, unfortunately, by the time I got to high school, junior high, Londonderry opened up and offered him a huge contract to do the not only the track and cross-country teams, but to head the math department, which he was a math teacher at Raymond, a very good one. So all my lessons were learned with him as a junior high kid. Um, a lot of the things that he did stayed with me. He was a good marathoner himself. He ran with us, um, and just having a coach who's better than you and running with you and supervising you and giving you help and encouragement and tips. Um, that was huge. And so I've carried a lot of that with me for the rest of my life. But you stopped running after high school, correct? Yeah. And not in college. And then you took it back up again in your forties. Yeah. I, I was so focused on running as a, as a freshman, a sophomore and a junior. Um, it really became all consuming. Um, my junior year, I was, I, I, challenged myself to run 140 miles, 20 miles a day, uh, the week I turned 17. It's a lot for a high school athlete. Yeah. Uh, nobody, That's like college level yeah, distances. I, I, I think if Larry were around at that point, he would have discouraged me from doing that. I was sore and I was tired and uh, the effects of it lasted through the whole cross country season. I lost my passion after cross country. You ran Boston at least once, right? Yeah. After the bombing, I started thinking about Boston. And I was 49, 48 when the bombing happened. 2013. Yeah. The next year, Meb Kofleski won. 
and it was very inspirational the way he 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 ran and won and and held in his uh, uh, wrote on his bib the names of some of the victims. Here's an Eritrean who came to this country and became a U.S. citizen and has represented us for a very long time. I think his first Olympics, he might have still represented Eritrea, but he had a long career. He was in the twilight of his career, and he was able to come back after numerous injuries, and people had, had written him off and, um, and win Boston. And it was just, it was very emotional watching him, knowing his story, just being a student of the sport and following it really closely. It just kind of inspired me, and, and it made me want to, want to get out to Boston and experience it for myself. And it got me thinking, now I'm 49, I really should try and run Boston. Um, all I'm doing is 5Ks at this point, just trail running with the dogs and um, focusing on short, fast distances. I've never even done a half marathon. But in the spring, I did a half marathon. Then I went down and I did uh, a few more short races, cane across races. And then I saw in July, there was uh, down at Somerville, they had the race around the lake, Ultra, where they had a 12, 24-hour and a marathon. And they start at 9 p.m. because this three-mile loop around the lake is lighted. And who wants to run a marathon in July when it's hot? So I started training pretty seriously for that. And I only had about six or seven weeks to get ready. Um, and I showed up with a pacing strategy that I adhered to pretty well and uh, even finished the last 5K a little faster than I had been running to make sure that I got under the qualifying time for Boston by several minutes because I know just beating the qualifying time doesn't get you in. It's, you know, it's a, a revolving kind of entry where they take uh, the, the people who qualify by 10 under and then people qualify by 5 under. If they reach 30,000 and you haven't gone fast enough, you may not get in. So anyway, I did qualify by seven minutes, and I was able to run my first Boston at the age of 50. I, I had run a 324, I think, to qualify for the age 50. And on that day, I ran a 324, but it was a very warm day with headwinds. So it was like a, a small victory, a measure of, okay, I didn't run faster than my last marathon, but this was a harder day. So I felt like I held up pretty good. Uh, two months after I qualified for Boston, there was a 50-mile race in Vermont, which became my first ultra. I thought Anything over marathon distance is basically an ultra, much. right? Yeah, they, they say 50K is kind of your first dis real distance, ultra distance, three, 31 miles. So anyway, I thought, I just, just turned 50, let's run a 50-mile trail race. And when I finished that, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. I couldn't believe how bad I hurt. It was just miserable. And I was not really well trained for that kind of a race. So I did the 50, but I had signed up for the Vermont 100, which was in July. So Memorial Day 50, okay, Boston in April, Memorial Day 50, now I got July coming up with the Vermont 100. And uh, I set myself a goal of like 19 hours. I thought that should put me near the top of my age group, um, looking back at previous results. And Vermont is a really hot, miserable kind of experience. If you're not, if you don't like the heat, don't do Vermont in July. It can be humid, uh, horse flies. We actually race with horses. The horses start out a, an hour or so after us, and then they pass us, and then and they, they bring do their the flies, checks and, and they bring the <laughs> flies. They drop them off on us. Um, I was doing great until 70 miles, and there was this one big hill out of the last out of that aid station at 70. And it crushed me. I had blisters on my feet. I had no energy. I hurt like I couldn't believe. And I was re reduced to walking for most of the rest of the way. At about 85 miles, it started to rain, and it was a cold rain. Thunder, lightning, rain. Um, and I hadn't put enough warm gear supplies out on the, on, on the trail. You could send things to aid stations if you were self-supported. I had nothing. I had a just a nylon singlet in my shorts and uh, a warm cup of coffee that I held to try and keep my hands from freezing. It was so cold. And I couldn't run fast enough to generate heat. In the last mile, I was staggering so badly from tree to tree 
that people were asking me if I was okay. And I said, I just kept saying, I will be when I'm done. I will be when I'm done. I'm okay. Just keep going. And I stumbled across the line in 23 and a half hours. I wanted that belt buckle so bad, though, that I was not going to give that up. I had to at least finish under 24 and get the belt buckle. It took a lot out of you. Oh, it took a tremendous amount out of me. And I thought the 50 was hard. Well, this 100 is a whole new level of hard. I couldn't believe how sore I was, how tired, how physically spent I was. I didn't, I, I wasn't even sure how I kept moving, but I was just determined my motivation was greater than the suffering to get to the line and get that belt buckle, the finisher's belt, belt buckle. So I did that. Funny thing is, just like childbirth, I guess, you know, you put the pain aside and you go, I want to do this again. So you set about you know, how can I do this again? And do it You're better. right. You don't think about the pain. Yeah. Yeah. From that event. You just think about the joy that yes. it brought you. Yeah. And I went into my car and I tried to sleep. I didn't even have a tent. I had no crew. I had nothing. I did it solo. So I got the solo finishers cup. I got the 24 hour belt buckle. I staggered back out in the morning and they give you 30 hours to finish to be an official finisher. And I walked out and I got some food and I walked down to the finish line and there was about a half an hour left to the finish, the official finish of the race. And I kind of got swept up. <laughs> it's emotional just to, to remember it, but um, when you see people struggle and they come in, <clears throat> to make that official finish. And I swear just about everybody who's already finished and their crews is there cheering. It's very emotional. <laughs> it's really cool. Um, and I think at that point I realized that uh, the whole community of ultra running is special. There's really something about it. Because you don't see people hanging around at a marathon or a road race waiting for the last finishers. But we're all there cheering on the last finishers. And to see somebody come in with a minute to go or 30 seconds to go, staggering and, and doing their best. It's, it's incredible. We just cheer and yell and clap and cry. And, you know, it's pretty neat. It's, it's definitely a community of runners. You're all involved in this event and, and you're all suffering and doing the best you can and you cheer each other on and you lift each other up. Is it that connection with humanity and the realization that people are so tough? Yeah. Just seeing what people are built out of that inspires you? We all have it in us whether we believe it or not. Um, and it takes things like this to sometimes find it, you know, to tap into it, to, to figure it out. And I think once you've done it and once you've seen it, it changes you profoundly. Um, it changes your whole perspective on life. Um, and it's, it's just, it's great to be a part of that. It sounds, for lack of a better word, a spiritual experience. Yes, and I... I we have friends and family who are deeply spiritual, and, and, and I don't want to uh, uh, make light of any of that. But yes, for us, it's, it's spiritual. Um, it's, it's very meaningful. It, it brings out the best in people. It takes so much out of you, not only in terms of hours per day and lifestyle mm -hmm. and time away from friends, family, do you ever feel like ultra running is an escape yes. from I, life, as I, if you're running from something? Yes, and I think for a lot of people, they're running from addiction. They're running from um, past trauma. There, there are so many reasons to do it. As an introvert, I'm comfortable alone. I, I really enjoy my time alone. I've never felt alone running because I have myself. It's, it's generally an escape from all of the things in life that just get to be a little too much. I don't feel like I'm running from something. It's felt 
over the last couple of years like I'm running to something. And I, I think I've learned lessons that are hopefully going to make me a better person, a more compassionate person. I've probably been too self-centered my, in my life. And between ultra running and the encouragement I've gotten from Dawn and on all of her help with this, um, it's hard to do this without somebody who understands and supports and encourages you. And, and I'm grateful to have somebody in my corner. Um, our backyard experience in Maine led me to two great competitors, uh, Jason and Ryan, who uh, decided that we were going to all do the Capitol backyard last year uh, down on uh, Memorial Day weekend in Virginia. And it's one of the biggest, most competitive backyard ultras. And in order for us to get there and do the best we could individually, we decided to work together in the year preceding. And we started a little chat group and shared all of our experiences, all of our training, all of our tips, everything that we could think of that could help each other. And the three of us showed up at that race. All three of us made it 200 miles. Um, I call it at 200, I had a badly swollen foot and I was just afraid that I was going to do damage. Um, Ryan kept going to 52 hours and then Jason made it, I think, 58, 59 maybe. So the three of us were stronger together and people were amazed that coming out of Maine where none of us had gone further than 30 hours at that race, but it's a tough race. Um, and that we all show up at this race, working together, helping each other out, um, leaning on each other when we needed to, emotionally, if we needed it. Um, two nights is a long time to go without sleep. And the second night, we all leaned on each other a little bit to get through it. Um, but we were stronger together. And I guess that was what I learned the most, is that by sharing experience and not being afraid to um, make myself vulnerable to to these guys so that they would know my strengths and my weaknesses. Um, it made us stronger. Um, and that's a great lesson that I've learned recently. What does not sleeping do to you during a race? Do you have hallucinations? What happens? Yeah, there's a little of all of that that goes on. But after running two full nights um, and seeing the dawn and at Bubba's this year, I was a couple hours short of that when I was able to finally get the win, I don't have hallucinations. I don't sleep at all. I will close my eyes and meditate when I'm tired um, quite a bit more the second night than the first night. Um, and I just try to relax. But I, my family has a history of insomnia. We're just not great <laughs> sleepers. So that's sort of a superpower for this kind right. of thing. I, I mean, need my sleep. Yeah. I the, think I do. The people who need their sleep really struggle with this. And, uh, I, yeah, I haven't had any trouble with two nights. My goal um, before I retire from this style of racing is to see if I can go back next Memorial Day and make it three nights. I'd really like to experience that third night and see if I can hold it together. What's that, a 300-mile ultra? That would be ultra? 300, yeah. What's the longest you've run so far? 200. 200 even? Yeah, that would be the last last year at Capitol. The one we were that, talking about. Yeah, that, they, they dialed the backyard so that 4.167 miles works out to exactly 100 miles every 24 hours. Yes. And when I first did one of these, I thought, you know what? It'd be really cool if I could run 200 miles in under two days. You know, I've already done the 100 thing under a day. But I want to see if I can do 200. And this is a great format to do it. Because every hour, you're forced to take a little rest if you're fast enough. You can relax. You can refuel at your own aid station with things you're comfortable with. It takes out a lot of the variables of, a, say, a continuous run race. So having accomplished that, now I just I want to see 300. I want to see if I can do <laughs> you're nuts. I know, absolutely. Every time you conquer a barrier, it's like, what's the next yeah. one? And so all three of us are talking about 300. And uh, Jason isn't sure he wants to go back, but Ryan is 100% ready. And, you know, we're going to you know, work together and try to accomplish that goal if we can, or, or at least see how far we can go. Well, you've done two, so why not, why not? see if yeah. you can get to three? Yeah. And if you don't, you know, right. I no mean, harm done. My body may not hold up. My mind may not hold up. I'm, you just don't know until you try. So what is your secret sauce? <laughs> I don't know. 
<laughs> Honestly, I have no idea. Um, a few years ago when I was um, sort of transitioning out of these cane across races, at 47 or 48, I was getting injured more than I was healthy. Trying to run 5Ks fast. I was training to run a four-minute mile with my dog. I mean, it's just my body was not handling that. And I decided... I wanted to try some longer, slower, easier stuff. So we, we semi-retired from the cane across at Pineland, and I told him I'm coming back to run the 50 the next year, and he kind of laughed at me. But I haven't registered for the cane across since, and I've run the 50 several times. So I guess I was true to my word there. Just last weekend, you ran the dumbest race in New Hampshire. That's not my word. No, it's not. <laughs> and you won. Yes. It seems appropriate that I... I should win the dumbest race in New Hampshire. I, let me clarify. I won the 24-hour race. They had a 30-hour, 24, that's a 12 and a 6. I haven't seen the finished results to know if somebody in the 30-hour went further than I did. But, uh, um, yeah, I, I entered it, and there were some studs there. There were some really strong athletes, young guys that could run 100 miles a lot faster than me. So to find myself at 80 miles, and this one kid had lapped me twice at four laps he had already lapped me once so he's four miles faster than me at 16 miles and at 10 laps he lapped lapped me again now this is a guy who can run 100 miles in 13 hours and he was on crazy record pace if he was going to keep that up for 24 hours he'd be near world record pace i think so it got me scratching my head was like wow is he really that good or is he going to flame out or does he he get injured all I could do is keep doing the best I could not worry about anybody else so suddenly at about 85 90 miles I passed him and he was walking and I thought I just got a lap back and I come into Don and I said Don you got to check the leaderboard they didn't have anything you could tap into with the um, with your uh, live results, you had to actually stand at the finish line and, and look at the leaderboard. So she brings her chair out and for two laps. She's watching to see who has how many laps when they cross the line. She's like, you're already ahead of him. And I said, how can that be? I only passed him once. She said, I don't know, but according to that, you're ahead of him. So he, he went out again and I saw him and he was running. So I said, I got to step on the gas. So I started running faster and I thought, you know, if he went through a bad patch and he comes back, I want to already have a buffer because I know he's faster than me. It turns out he had a really bad race. I think he may have gone out too fast. I think he might have picked up an injury. He was struggling. And so suddenly there I was. I was in contention to win a race. I had no idea I'd be in any situation to win. How many miles did you end up as the last man standing um, for the 24 hours, I got 124 miles. I was hoping for 130. But by the time I got to uh, 116, I had a lead and I had a decision to make. Do I stay on the gas and try to get to 128, which would have tied the record, or do I take it easy and just kind of enjoy the end of the race? And I decided to back off and I actually just walked the whole last lap. I didn't even run. And I was able to interact with some of the people because it's on a railroad bed. You go out and back and you see almost everybody, you know, in that format at least once, how they're doing, whatever. And so it was fun to talk to people. Um, My favorite comment was, you really inspire me, you know, being an old guy. (laughs) Some would say, how old are you? 57. Oh, my God, you inspire me. That's my favorite compliment ever. If I'm inspiring anybody to do this at any age, um, that's my favorite. I, I just, I think that's great. So, yeah, that was fun. It was fun to just walk the last lap and enjoy it and have fun and gear down. Are there any exclusive ultras that you're interested in, like the Western States 100 or Barkley Marathons? This is a question from my daughter. Yes. Uh Barkley is intriguing. and I, um, I think if I were younger, I would do it, and I'm not writing it off. I would consider doing it at some point, but it's such a humbling race. I don't have a ton of uh, orienteering experience 
So I would have to really fill that page before I give it a shot. But um, yeah, maybe as I get tougher and older, um, maybe it, it would suit me because it's not a speed event. It's about orientating and finding those book pages and just keep moving at a steady pace. Don't get lost. Don't, don't get disoriented and uh, keep going. So that, yes, I wouldn't say never, but probably not likely. Western states, who doesn't want to do that? Um, that's the granddaddy of them all in, in this country. So, yeah, but it's a lottery. And I try not to get attached to anything that involves a lottery because I, I could wait 10 years before I get into it. And I'm not going to win my way into it at this age. My daughter's other question. I know you spoke about Meb earlier. Are there any other athletes or ultra runners who you look up to in terms of what they've been able to achieve? Um, Harvey Lewis, He's um, he's been a big inspiration. He's been one of the strongest, most consistent uh, backyard racers ever. Um, we love Courtney DeWalter, the energy she brings to Ultra. She's so much fun to watch. Um, she just throws herself out there with joy and, and inspiration and has fun even when she's throwing up and struggling. I mean, um, she's done great at the backyard, and she's also not done great. It's one of those things where uh, backyard is, has such a specific requirement to it that not everybody excels. Harvey excels. Courtney smashes things. She just goes out and, you know, wins Moab 240 outright, beats all the men, and her UTMB last year was incredible. Um, those are two people I really look up to. So just as a point of clarification, when you say backyard, a lot of these ultras are run on, like, four-mile tracks in someone's actual backyard. Yeah, yeah. And Canacross, you've talked about that uh-huh. over the time we've spent today. Explain a little bit more about canine cross-country. Okay. The dog is pulling a bicycle or leading a runner, right? Yes, leading a runner. We have bike jour, which is the wheeled equivalent to ski joring. Um, And then we have cane across, which I think your daughter would love. And if she's interested, we will set her up with a dog and she can give it a shot. Oh, wow. Yes, absolutely. We Um, should come out here. I should bring them out here. Maybe over a Christmas vacation? Anytime. Anytime. Dry land, snow, if the trail's packed, you could wear a pair of spikes on the Wow, what an opportunity. When I run cane across, and I did a... One of the races I did in the Midwest in my 40s, I did a... uh, It was one mile in a cornfield. I had a steep hill in it, and it was muddy. It was in ideal conditions. But I ran a 424 mile with my dog. I didn't run that in high school. Um, I would typically run... Um, about a half minute to a minute faster than I could do a 10k, uh, 5k myself with the dog pulling. Because a 420 it, mile. Yeah. At what age? At I was like 40, 44, wow. 45. Because of the dog. Because of the dog. Yeah. And so they run on average, how many miles per hour with you, and how many miles per hour faster would they run without you? Yeah. These the dog that I was using. Or, any dog that I've used that was competitive with the cane across could run 25 to 30 miles an hour on their own. So they have this extra energy that they're giving to you. The waist belt, you, it ta- there's a learning curve to running with a dog. You have to have faster turnover. You're also gaining distance in the air because the dog is pulling you forward. So you use all of that mechanical advantage and you can fly with a dog. It's, it's amazing. It's a, uh, yeah. It's that a sounds trip. like a lot of fun. It is. And, but it's also a recipe for injury if you're not careful. On I the think. part of the runner? Yeah. I, not so much the dog. No, no dog, not at yeah, all. Yeah, because he's We're pulling you maybe sometimes that. too fast. Too fast. For yeah. your ability. And that's what I found as I get into my late 40s is um, hamstring issues, um, especially. Uh, and I was getting chronically injured to the point where the, it was just dumb for me to keep doing it. Uh, at least at that level. Um, Dawn does it, but she does it with a dog that's more peaceful about it, that trots and, and enjoys it and will stop with her. So she's trained a dog to do it for pleasure rather than for speed. And I've always done it for speed. So 
this niche sport I read, and I think I'm accurate, it's only been a real competitive sport for about 20 years. Yes. There are a few events that are 5K-ish, um, dog jogs or, you know, place like that. A lot of them are on pavement, unfortunately. There's one in Nashua that uh, does a lot on the bike path out along the river, and it's off the pavement for quite a bit. But, um, yeah, there's a bunch of them you can enter if you're a 5K specialist and you got a dog that likes to run. Um, Pineland Farms has the biggest one. They had almost 200 runners at their 5K um, a couple years ago. Um, yeah, it's pretty popular. Thank you, Ed. Find Diary of a Nation through your favorite podcast app. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Diary of a Nation.